Hey, dear listeners, today's guest is the writer, director, actress, comedian, and musician Carrie Brownstein. You know Carrie from Portlandia, transparent, and as a founding member of the influential grunge rock band Sleater Kinney. Carrie and I both grew up in Washington State, and even though we're the same age, I always looked up to Carrie as one of the cool girls. Later in the episode, I am excited to welcome Dr. Emily Morse as our newest guest expert. Dr. Emily is a doctor of human sexuality, author, host of the incredibly popular Sex with Emily podcast, and frequent contributor to publications like the New York Times, Men's Health, Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Ask Men, and Harper's Bazaar. As always, thank you for sharing your stories with us. It means so much to hear from you. If you have a question and you think we may be able to help, please go to the link on our website at unqualified.com. And now here's Carrie. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hey, how's it going? Good. How you doing? Hey, are you in Portland? I am. I was living in LA, but now I'm back here for a while. Are you in LA? Yeah, I'm in LA and I want to get into Northwest talk. I grew up in Edmonds, Washington. I know you grew up in Washington. How do you know that? I remember reading an article about you, maybe in the New Yorker profile. Remember that? Yeah, I do. That was a very stressful experience in my life. Yeah, I had it one too. And it is stressful because even though you're excited, you're like, here it goes. Here's my New Yorker profile. It's very exposing. Yeah. I felt probably more panicked like the week before it came out when the fact checker called than I have maybe in my life. Yes. I was resigned to never working in Hollywood again. I was like, I cannot remember what I told this man. (laughs) Yeah. It was terrifying. Well, first of all, Carrie, I have admired you from afar for a very long time. So I'm delighted to be able to talk to you and get to know you over this podcast. And I can't thank you enough for doing it. Yeah, no, the feeling is mutual. I know that there were times where I think we tried to get you on Portlandia and the scheduling didn't work. Anyway, I'm happy to talk to you. So Carrie, how has the last seven months, how has it been for you? I'm doing okay. I mean, I should start by saying I just feel lucky. My health is good. I don't have COVID currently. I haven't had it. My friends and family are healthy. So in that sense, I'm doing fine. But obviously, it's a strange time. Psychologically, very disruptive. And yeah, just vacillating between inertia and mania and just despondency, probably. Yeah, we're so adjusted to, I don't know, planning. In a way, through like the anxiety, there was a feeling of liberation a little bit because Mm -hmm. we didn't know what to do, what tomorrow would bring. It felt like toilet paper was the main concern. And that was good to focus on that one thing. Yes. Has there been a shift in your personality or, I don't know, hobbies? Both, I think. One is just the embracing of stillness. I am kind of a nomad, so I like to travel and be out in the world, and then I like to miss home and sort of have home be something that I'm looking forward to getting back to, and then I'm there for a little while and leave again. It kind of had to reconstitute things like on a cellular level. You'd just be like, no, you're not going anywhere. Like I haven't been on a plane since March 2nd. I've just learned how to sort of embrace the not doing, I guess. It's a way of being in the present. And I have been doing things, but just in a context, like sometimes I think you can trick your brain, like just the movement is a thing. 
like, no, I'm not really moving around that much. I'm just have to figure out a ways of like expanding these parameters in my own like house or city. And then yes, I've become a better cook. Do you cook? I do. You do. So when things were very much shut down and you just had to be at the grocery store, I was like, I need to start cooking again. And I had it in a while and I really enjoyed it. Although when restaurants started opening up again for takeout, I was like, ah, my flavor profile is very narrow. I realized (laughs) like I'd gotten used to my own cooking and then was like, you know what? I have made strides, but not as far as I could go. But Carrie, wait, what's your favorite flavor profile? Well, I would just say that like, you know, you eat out and you're like, when people describe things, it's like, oh, this is so complex, the umami and this and that. I'm like, I'm just trying to get to like a place where it's just seasoned correctly. You know, just at that base level, like I'm really good with pasta. I'm good with breakfast. Great with breakfast. My French toast is very solid. (laughs) Pancakes, very solid. Eggs with like tortillas and cheese, very solid. Some of my dinners, getting there. Rice bowls, really getting the hang of a rice bowl, (laughs) trying to make those more complex. And I couldn't even describe to you what it is about other people's food. It's just better. It's just better, but mine is fine. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I'm a pretty good cook. I've got some staples. I love other people enjoying it, but I don't relish it the same way, just like you. So wait, you were going to say an also. I was going to say that I've also learned how to like make a good cocktail, which is like, I feel like you shouldn't really brag about that. Sure. I'm not a big drinker, but I did enjoy like meeting friends for a drink. And you realize like when you don't go out for drinks that you're sort of limited to beer and wine, if you're not going to put any effort into it, that can get boring. You have to find new ways of like celebrating things or demarcating like a weekend or you know what I mean? Like it's all this formality that I feel like we had to bring into our homes. It's like, oh, if we want to have a night that feels different from another night, then I guess I need to make us a drink tonight. You know what I mean? Or do something and like, You used to be able to do something, go somewhere, externalize like an event. And now it's just like, how can we make this Monday different than the last 10 Mondays? I don't know how long you've been in your new place, but do you feel a sense of home about it? I mean, yes and no. It's lacking a certain familiarity, although I obviously have things here that remind me of home and that feel familiar and comfortable. It is within Portland, so that makes sense. I got rid of my place in LA, which was kind of weird that happened like during this whole thing. And it was sort of like saying goodbye from like another planet, like the whole move and selling of the house like happened remotely. That must have felt strange. I felt like I was on a ship, like waving goodbye to shore. There was like a weird distance to it. Can we talk a little bit about the comparison between these cities? Yeah. I've been to Portland many times, but I've never lived there. I like to think a lot about the distinction and personality of different areas. I like to generalize. That's fine. That's normal. (laughs) So you're very loyal to the Pacific Northwest. I mean, for lack of a better term, it feels kind of like my spiritual home. Like I understand the weather here. I feel like I understand sort of the way things work and it feels comfortable, but... I always thought of it as a place, kind of like what I was saying earlier, like I take a break from it and I come back. And then I really appreciate it because as you know, it gets dark here very early. Like there's no sun coming out of that window. Like it's a dreary day. Like those kinds of things I think do wear on you. And when I was living in LA, I did like the weather and I have great friends in LA, which is why I think I miss it the most. So I don't know if I'm loyal to the Northwest or it's just sort of what I know. And if I'm going to travel, which ostensibly, inevitably, we all will again, if we can, it's a nicer place to return to for me than L.A. 
like it's quieter. I like to walk around like I can bicycle, like those kind of things I like, but I don't want to be anywhere full time. I'm kind of restless in that way, but I do like it as home. Seattle is a different story. I grew up outside Seattle. It's a very weird place. I don't really recognize it. You mean because it shifted so much? Yeah. I don't know. Well, you were in Edmonds. I was in Redmond, both outside of Seattle. But it's just so techy up there. It's just a different kind of city. I thought of it as a little quieter, a little like outside the sort of spectrum of the mainstream. And now it just feels different. But I have a lot of friends up there that still love it. But they've all been pushed out. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. But Carrie, can we go through a little bit of like your teen years into college a little bit? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Wait, where did you go to college? I went to University of Washington. Yeah. Right there in Seattle. Yeah. It was too big of a school for me. It was huge. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I went for a guy. We were dating. Classic. I know. A classic reason to go to college. (laughs) Man. (laughs) And you guys are still together, right? Of course. You're like, he's my fiance. We've gotten married a couple of times. It's third time's a charm. That stuff always works out. That stuff always works out. (laughs) Okay. So here's what I read. So when you started playing guitar, well, maybe you started before, but you started taking lessons with, and forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Jeremy Enoch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From Sunny Day Real Estate. Mm -hmm. And that was at 15? Yes, that was at 15. Okay. As a person who's never successfully played an instrument. Okay. Can you describe your attraction to music in general? Well, probably, I mean, I think you're a little bit younger than me, but similar era. The angry times. (laughs) Yeah. But before that, I was, you know, definitely like 80s and early 90s, like MTV, pop music, loved all that stuff. And then I think as I was transitioning into, you know, adolescence, I remember starting to realize that I was not fitting in as well with the mainstream kids, you know, high school at the time, I don't even know what high school is like now, but there was a lot of like clicks then, you know, things were just seemed like less sort of tolerant. It was so compartmentalized. And so I started kind of like hanging out with, they were called bat cavers. Yeah. That was before the word like alternative. It was pre-Nirvana. So like Nirvana sort of made it like, okay. Like it was like, oh, now everyone's sort of like alternative. But all the weirdo kids had to hang out together. That's what they called our drama club. Bat cavers? Yeah, we were the bat cavers. I wonder if that was like a Northwestern because I don't know anyone else that knows this term, but it was like the goths. I'm shocked. I know. (laughs) Yeah. So it was the bat cavers. So we hung out. And anyway, so those kids listen to, you know, punk music and indie music. And there was something that just matched what I was like feeling in those songs. All the kind of cliche stuff. It was angsty. It was emotional. It was messy. And I just really was drawn to it. And then some of my friends were playing, mostly guys, but some girls too were singing or playing guitar, drums. And it just felt like a way of being around people. Just like when you're doing like theater as a kid, like half of it is just being able to hang out with people and share something kind of emotional and a little more vulnerable and raw than you get to in other areas of your life. That process is very intriguing to me, I guess. The solitude of actually getting good. Yeah, I think it was just really the first thing that allowed me to express myself in a way that had felt foreign or a hurdle for me. And it was like, I liked writing. So it was a way of writing in a way that just felt more immediate because I could put lyrics to a song. My early stuff, I mean, it was pretty bad, but luckily that music, there was something, especially at the time where there was like this ethos of like sort of anti-professionalism, especially in like punk 
which was very helpful at the time because it just meant that you didn't have to wait until you were at a certain level to get out and perform. It was like, oh, you guys have been a band for a couple of weeks or you've been playing for a few weeks, go play a show. That was kind of in the water then. And that was a nice thing about being outside of like LA or New York where like there was a sheen or polish. The Northwest, it was very, all the scenes in the US, the music scenes, you know, they were not about the polish or the sheen, but about like the feeling. Can I read your Wikipedia quote? Oh, Do no. you mind? What if it's... It's beautiful. Okay, okay. Uh, music has always been my constant, my salvation. It's cliche to write that, but it's true. From dancing around to Michael Jackson and Madonna as a kid, to having my mind blown by the first sounds of punk and indie rock, to getting to play my own songs and have people listen, music is what got me through. Over the years, music put a weapon in my hand and words in my mouth. It backed me up and shielded me. It shook me and scared me and showed me the way. Music opened me up to living and being free and feeling. That's beautiful, Carrie. <laughs> Thanks. I relate to that through acting a bit. I enjoy escaping through a character, you know, and using a character in someone else's words to express myself. That's what I really relate to with that quote, the empowerment of sort of disappearing through another form of expression. I'm very, very envious of musical ability. Not envious enough to actually try anything. I did buy a cello. Oh, wow. That's a hard... How's it going? It's not great, Carrie. It's in my bathroom. That's a hard instrument. It felt dramatic. It felt like I had this big thing in between my legs and I could saw away at it. It hasn't gone very well. Do you have an instrument that you would love to master overall? Oh, gosh. Actually, yeah. I mean, something like violin or like the saxophone. I feel like it would be like a brass instrument or maybe a wood. You would make a cool saxophone player. <laughs> so what was your high school experience like? I feel like in high school, I was so partially formed. I was such a follower and pretty shy. And I think not very assertive. Because I, I remember going to college and all of my professors would say, you need to speak up more in class. I would get very nervous which is weird because now I can perform on stage or in front of people and not be nervous, but I could not raise my hand to just give a comment about anything. And so I think in high school, I was still like that too. Just very understated, just not wanting any attention in school. At home, I think I just came home and just tortured the rest of my family with performances. I'm always trying to understand how high school affected me. I had like a C minus social status. Yeah, same. Theater felt so much more fulfilling and school was, I think I recognized at a young age that it was just the time to pass. And I was really excited to get out of Washington. Would I have ever seen you in a play at the Seattle Children's Theater or at the Seattle Rep? <laughs> Did you see Arthur Miller's Danger Memory? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I did not. Oh, all right. Did you see Heidi? Oh. Or To Kill a Mockingbird? I might have seen Heidi. My parents had season tickets to the rep. No. And often my dad especially would not go, so I would get to go with my mom to the rep, which I did really enjoy. I saw Hedda Gabler there, which was very shocking to have a gun go off. I was like, oh my God. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. God. That's amazing of your parents, though. Were they really supportive of your musical ambition? No. What do you mean? I mean, they were supportive, but I think they thought, my dad especially put a huge premium on education and sort of being a pragmatist about things. So when I went to college, I think he wanted to make sure that whatever I was doing was a means to an end and it was practical in terms of you know making a living. And I think it wasn't until I had started playing music and it was kind of doing okay. There were like markers, you know, like you get a certain thing and suddenly your parents are like, aha, okay, now like, I'm sure for my parents, it was like Time Magazine or something they could tell like their parents or their friends and their friends would be like, yes, Time Magazine, you know, like just something like that. Then I think my dad was like, okay, I guess this is okay. They want me to be happy. I think it was just like a concern of like, you're going down this path that's very uncertain. And of course, everyone learns later is all the paths are uncertain. Just I think art sometimes seems more uncertain to parents who have traditional jobs. And then you went to Western Washington first and then to Evergreen. Yeah. Were you happier at Evergreen? For our listeners who don't know, Evergreen is a school where you design your own curriculum. And it's a great school from my impression, right? It is. I think it's become more mainstream, but definitely at the time, which was like the 90s, it was fully an alternative kind of education, like Hampshire College in New York, like experiential, qualitative grades. There's no actual like number. It was like the dream. And it definitely defined a type. Like if you grew up in the 90s in Washington State, the Evergreen College has a very specific, you know, image. Yeah, it definitely was more like hippied out than I ever dipped into. There's definitely that element. Like I said, I think it's gotten a little more mainstream, but for sure, I don't think my parents were super excited about Evergreen because it's hard to sort of explain <laughs> to people. But now it's, I guess, a little more normal. Now college is only accessible to some people anyway, but I think it's like there's a, a lot of people that are choosing not to go to college anyway. Like it's very vague whether college is even worth it for people, especially if you're going to just be in student debt for the rest of your life. I know. I don't think anybody for, I don't know, 25 years has asked me in any kind of job like... <laughs> Where did you go to school? What were your grades in college? Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. I was always a 3.4 kind of student, which is kind of hard to decipher, like what that means in terms of drive or intelligence. It's kind of where I was too, yeah. Slightly higher than my social status, yes. but still pretty vague. I'm not great with like standardized like testing and that kind of stuff. But I did also think about graduate school. Like for me, like I just felt like I was figuring it out for a long time. <laughs> so at Evergreen is when you formed Slater Kinney. Yes, I formed Slater Kinney with my friend and bandmate, Corin Tucker, who had also gone to Evergreen. I think she had graduated by the time we formed the band. Is the guitar in your background a favorite? In fact, I just noticed. It's kind of a new guitar, and it's like one of the only things in the room. It's a Fender Jazzmaster. It's beautiful. It's like a blue, which is one of my favorite colors. But I brought it in here because it's new and because I thought, oh, well, maybe it'll be, I need to sort of like get to know it. Getting to know it, meaning simply playing it. But that idea is strange to me because I've never played an instrument. 
But I, now that you say it, it must mean that every guitar or every instrument has its own feel, like a car. Yeah, exactly. Like, what does the neck feel like? Is it smooth? Is it like, I mean, you can adjust things, like you can adjust the bridge and that adjusts the action, like how far the strings are off the neck. But they do have different feels. Like even if you adjust the action, like the necks feel different, the frets feel different, the weight of it feels different. And I don't know. Sometimes I'll get like a different effects pedal, like for guitar, that's like distortion or flange or chorus or any number of things. You're not going to reinvent the wheel just because you have a new sound, but sometimes it allows you to hear something in a different way. It's like the English language or something like we know that there's only a certain amount of words and sure we can put together sentences that are unique all the time, but sometimes like you just have to refresh that and just be reminded that there's new things to write. Like when you look at a blank page and the same with guitar, like I just want to get a feel for it because maybe I'll write something new on it because it just feels different. It feels novel, which is rare. I love it that you're kind of like smiling through this as though you enjoy the process. I mean, of course you must enjoy the process. (laughs) I do still enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess what's the analog with you for that? Like, I guess it's like, how do you make this dialogue sound like you're just thinking it or... You know, if it's slightly awkward, how are you going to pace it out of your mouth? But you know this too. You're an actor. But no, I'm not. I mean, that's just something I feel like out of the things I do, that's sort of like Portlandia. Like I basically have like a narrow strand on which I can sort of operate in that world. And it kind of has to be specific. Whereas like you have a range of things and approach things like as a actor. (laughs) I don't know. I'm auditioning for a period piece. And I was told a while back that I'm a very contemporary actor Mm -hmm. and it's really in my head. It makes me uncomfortable and terrible with accents. I think my range is really limited. Well, I cannot agree with you there, but I will say that sometimes I'll look at someone in a period piece and think like I have to make more of a mental hurdle. Sometimes I think people in that category is like a Julia Roberts. Like I'm just like, Julia Roberts doesn't exist in the 1800s. She only exists from 1983 on, you know what I mean? Or whatever. But I feel like you could slip into another era. Thanks, Carrie. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you a series of life questions. Sure. What was your first boss like? Oh, <laughs> well, I don't remember my first boss at my first job, which was a movie theater, because we never really met the boss. The boss was always some <laughs> other kid that was just like a year older, with like a real power trip going on. But my boss after that was a woman that worked at Crown Books, which was used to be like a chain, like a book chain. Do you remember Crown? Yeah. Yeah. Which one? It was in Olympia. I was 18. This is my job after high school. And she did not like me because I did not read all those like mass market fiction books. And she was like, how can you possibly sell a book if you're not reading, you know, F is for right, 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 right. filth or whatever those novels are, like Sue Grafton or whomever. Like, I just didn't read that stuff. And so she was very harsh. But you know what? I probably was a real pill, so... Do you have a favorite movie or TV show that you watch on rainy days? Okay. Moonstruck. Oh, that's a great one. I love that movie. I could watch that all the time. I find it very uplifting. It's funny. It's very heartening. And yeah, it's so well written. And then I don't know about if I have a TV show that I watch on rainy days. I feel like rainy days to me are more like movies or rewatching things. Maybe The Office. I feel like I can just bring up like seasons one through four of the U.S. office and pretty much enjoy it every time. 
Carrie, I've asked that question to a lot of our guests, and most of them are in LA. So as I realize asking you about a Rainy Day movie. <laughs> like, what do you watch every day in the winter? In yeah. <laughs> it's fine. It still works. Okay. On what occasion do you lie? Oh, to not hurt someone. But I think a true lie like can be nefarious and have bigger consequences. But if somebody is asking me about something and it's just going to be easier to say like, no, I do like this food. I think this tastes great. I think that's not hurting them. Like, yes, if they were a professional chef or they were going out for a job and I didn't like the food, but I feel like sometimes that kind of lie of just not disrupting life, I think those are okay. Where do you envision yourself at age 73? Oh gosh, if I'm alive, I would like to be out in the country somewhere. I really would love to live a little farther out from a city, have some animals. Like what kind of animals? Well, I already have two dogs. I think I would add horses, goats. All right. Yeah. Maybe a third dog, a barn cat. But yeah, like out with my family and people I love just on a little bit of property. Nothing crazy, but just a little more space, I think. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? Mm, Probably France. In Paris? I would love to live in Paris for a year, I think. Yeah. Paris feels very unknowable to me. Same, but I think in a way that like a year there would be nice to just get a sense of it. Like every time I go there, I feel really in awe of it. It just seems like a great world city. Yeah. What's the best advice you've been given? Probably to not overthink things. (laughs) Do you remember who gave it to you? I do. It was actually Lorne Michaels. He was the executive producer of Portlandia. That is jarring coming from him. I know. Like one of the most intimidating (laughs) people in the world. But he does have sage advice. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of ageism in all industries. And there's definitely times where I think we can honestly say like people have aged out or people's ideas are no longer relevant or we've heard from them so much and let's let someone else in the room. That's all true. But one thing I really admire about people who have done anything for a long time is they've just wrote out these vicissitudes. They've wrote out these ups and downs and phases and all that stuff. So they just have this perspective of just not worrying about certain things that we all get really caught up in, whether it's work or other things, you know. And I think a lot of us overthink things. And I think about that a lot, not really just with work, but just It takes you out of the present. You know what I mean? It's just, you get so stuck in something. I'm just like, why am I stuck here in this mental space? Just move on. I love that. What's a trait you dislike in others? Possessiveness. Oh, interesting. I don't even know. No, it is interesting because a lot of people will talk about arrogance or selfishness or deception, but possessiveness of something else, possessiveness over creative material? I guess now that like we're elucidating on it, it feels like a form of selfishness, like a form of sort of like lack of generosity about space in a room and like a dynamic. I think I'm just like wary of when I feel like people are sort of like controlling, I guess, but there's sort of a selfishness about being like possessive or controlling of ideas and other people. I find that very toxic. That makes sense. I'm trying to think what the more fundamental trait of that is. I ultimately guess it's selfishness. I think selfishness does really bother me. That lack of like graciousness and generosity. Um, 
So maybe I'll just say selfishness and possessiveness is an offshoot of that because I just prefer people to be thoughtful. I even have another one that bugs me the most. What? Lack of self-awareness. That like overrides everything. When people just don't have the ability to say like, I made a mistake or like, I can't own this. I find that really tricky because it kind of just excuses everything. You're like, oh, okay. You don't know yourself. You haven't done the work enough to sort of be able to like come to the table with like who you are in an honest way. Carrie, I'm worried that I may fall into that category. Well, we all do sometimes. And let's be honest, like usually traits that we abhor in other people are things that we see and feel in ourselves sometimes. Yeah. Well, I was about to ask you, what is a trait you dislike in yourself? (laughs) Oh, I would say indecisiveness. Look, I just changed my answer on the last thing. I mean, I'm already going to beat myself up over that. And indecisiveness, I think, is like an extension of, I don't know if it's insecurity or just people pleasing. Sometimes I feel like I'm too worried about pleasing. I don't like that in myself. I don't like that in myself at all. Yeah, I have that same quality, although I think that it's dissipating a little bit as I get older. Same, which is great. Not caring, caring about things that matter and like putting everything else into the periphery, I think is really important. And then it allows you to give more to the people who really actually care about you. Carrie, what qualities do you look for in a romantic partner? Honesty, sense of humor, kindness, and just for them to be passionate about something. Ideally, something that I like too, but, you know, and intelligence. Yeah. What's a skill or a talent, and for the sake of this, maybe outside of music, that you would love to master? Like visual art or drawing. I'm so bad at it. I mean, my sketches are like a child's. I can't draw at all. (laughs) Okay. What qualities do you look for in a friend? I always feel like friends serve different purposes. Yeah, they do. I like loyalty from friends and I like a sense of humor is important and compassion. Yeah, similar, but a little different. When and where are you happiest? Um, that's a tough question because I'm very grass is always greener person. Like when I'm traveling, I want to be home. And when I'm home, I want to be traveling. So maybe I'm happiest when I'm about to do the next thing. Then when the next thing arrives, forget it. Just sheer anxiety and depression. But right before, I'm happiest on a precipice, I guess. I'm so like that too. What's your least favorite holiday? I think Easter because growing up Jewish, but very secular, I was always like, like my friends are busy. It's an arbitrary Sunday and I've got the whole day and I don't get chocolate. I don't get to look for eggs. I'm not dressed up in some fancy outfit going to church. I'm just home. I understand it from a biblical standpoint, but it always was like a little foreign to me. But can I ask you what your relationship with religion is? Very minimal. And in fact... I sometimes resent you grew up in the Northwest. It's not the same along the West Coast because obviously there's a lot of practicing Jews in LA. But in the Pacific Northwest, it's like the last stop or something. It's just people kind of go there and there's sort of a blandness to it in terms of like, I wouldn't call it like assimilationist, but I think there's kind of its own culture to adopt there in a lot of ways. And there weren't a lot of like practicing Jews there. So my parents were like, let's do Christmas, like (laughs) almost as soon as they could, which was, of course, very exciting for my sister. And I were like, yeah, let's get the tree in here as soon as we can. Let's (laughs) go out and get those decorations. 
So I sort of wished that they had stuck to their guns a little more. I mean, they grew up getting bar mitzvahed and bat mitzvahed, and they just let that stuff slide. So when I got older and I had friends with a much deeper relationship to religion or spirituality, I felt like, oh, I kind of am missing the foundation. I wish I had known enough about Judaism to either reject it or embrace it or figure out where my place was in it from a practicing standpoint. So long story short, my relationship to it is very tenuous. I like Passover. Bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. I was watching a panel with you and Fred regarding Portlandia, and you said something so great. You said that something that you're really proud of is saving essentially the last feminist bookstore. Right, but it's gone now, though. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. There's a lot of things gone now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, what do you miss about Portlandia in general? I miss the writers. I miss being in a writer's room with people who I really respect and admire and getting to do that for weeks on end. And also immersing myself in the city. We didn't have stages, so we shot on location. That is so great. That was such an interesting way of being in the city, seeing parts of it I would never get to see otherwise. I think also it's one of those things where when you're doing it, you know, you were on a show for a very long time too. Like you're thinking about the work and you're thinking about the things that are hard. I mean, you're enjoying it. You don't take it for granted, but like you don't realize until it's over, like how lucky it is to get to do anything past like two years or three years. You know, it's so rare. Yeah. Carrie, if you were to completely generalize each member of a band, Uh like personality type in a very stereotypical way. Okay. Drummer, lead guitarist. What's a drummer like? Truly be insulting. Okay, well, drummers, like the jokes about drummers are that they're like the dummies in the band, which usually isn't true, but like... But wait, why? Because it's like they're like cavemen just like (laughs) back there just like wailing on skins with sticks. I mean, it's primal. So I think there's always like this association with them as kind of like the knuckleheads, but often attractive, you know, muscular. They're like the jocks. Are they always late? Oh, That's another cliche, but they're not always late. Who's late? I think lead singers. Lead singer would be like the prima donna of the band. The guitarist would be like the kind of secretly wanting more attention than the singer because they feel like they're the ones that are like doing the heavy lifting, actually. They wish that like, oh, the audience would pay attention to them. Why are they looking at the singer? I wrote this song if it wasn't for this great riff. So if those two are fighting... 
And everyone's like waiting for them to shut the fuck up so like rehearsal can continue. What's the bassist up to at this point? Yeah, they're just holding down the fort over there. Slow and steady. That's the rhythm section. If you were 23, I would definitely encourage you to date the bass player. Really? I always thought that was like the person to avoid. Why? And listen, I mean, the kinds of cliches and generalizations we're making are like based on probably like Led Zeppelin. And we should have progressed past that. But I think those like stereotypes are very cemented for bands. I don't know. You're right. The bass player also could be like the secret kind of serial killer. I feel like it seems like the safety. Yes. But then it's like the thing where it turns out like really dark shit, right? Yeah, truly, Carrie, I know nothing. I was going to start this out because I know that you interviewed musicians and wrote for, what was the magazine called? Oh, The Believer. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you could help guide me in what questions you'd like to be asked regarding music. But okay, stay away from the bass player. Like, yeah, you could date the keyboard player. You could date a backup singer. You could date the percussionist. But if you were 23, you just want to date the lead singer. That's what everyone wanted to date. I do have a list of people, and it's exclusively for men because in my limited imagination, I feel like men potentially fall prey to identity with their career a little bit more, at least in my world. Mm -hmm. But number one is magician, and number two is musician, with the exception of a classical musician. But it cannot be like first chair violinist or something. It can't be that. Are these people that you should always avoid dating? Yeah. Well, yes, a magician, 100%. Totally, right? <laughs> Would I date a magician? No. No. And I feel like it's okay. It'd be one thing if I was 20 and ruling that out. But I think in my 40s, I can tell you with a lot of clarity that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's a whole category for actors as well. Yes. Or like say I'm older and I find myself single and I go on a cruise, we know once we get the vaccine and there's a magician on the cruise. Oh yeah, all right. You know, right? Yeah, he might tell you the secrets. That seems fun, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who would you invite to your dream dinner party? Okay, James Baldwin and Dorothy Parker, just for the intellect and humor. And then I would like throw in like a Gilda Radner. I mean, she's gone now, but you know, like a comedian, Carol Burnett. That's a good list. For what historical figure would you start a fan club? Yeah, good question. I couldn't answer this one. I mean, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. I mean, I feel like historical figures have a fan club just by being historical figures. The fact that we even know about them. But like, I always think it's weird when people, I remember a friend of mine (laughs) sent me a photo from like a gay pride parade and someone had held up like a sign of like, iconic and inspirational bisexuals and Anne Frank was on there. And I was like, now Anne Frank, bless her, was a child. You know what I mean? Like, and maybe they're inferring something from her diaries, but I was like, it always feels weird to sort of pull somebody from the past into like a present day context and then to kind of worship them. And I was like, good for you for getting out there to that pride parade. Good for you for making your own sign. But I would call that inclusion questionable. Carrie, I read something personal and I want to ask you about it. (laughs) Oh, shit. Well, it was about at age 21. I read that you were outed by Spin Magazine. Yeah. Did your family not know? Uh, No, my family didn't know. So I feel like we have to contextualize this because, you know, that era, let's see, that was 1995. Very different era. Definitely pre-internet. And definitely a different time for being LGBTQ. Like gay marriage wasn't legal. And obviously people still struggle with all these things. 
but I just did not have the vocabulary or the recognition. Like I didn't see myself in the world the way that a young queer person might be able to see themselves in the world from a very early age right now. So having a sense that I might not be straight was scary for me. And even though I was in a community of friends and musicians that were very accepting, I didn't really know how to talk to my parents about it. So anyway, we did this interview for Spin Magazine, which also doesn't exist anymore. It was a music magazine. That was a huge deal. It was a huge magazine. Yeah, Yeah. it was a huge magazine. And basically the writer made reference to the fact that my bandmate and I had been dating and my bandmate wasn't as a woman. And anyway, so, you know, I was so excited. It was like one of our first like big pieces, like kind of, we talked about this earlier, like those moments where you're like, oh, I get to tell my parents I'm in Rolling Stone or Spin or whatever. We had done this big photo shoot in New York, super exciting. You know, all these things, I was so young and really eager And I remember going to pick up the magazine, but before I could, my dad called and I was like, how is it? And anyway, he said, oh, well, there's something in there. Do you want to talk about it? And yeah, it was just, it was really hard because I just felt like the agency was taken away from me to be able to determine like when and how I presented that information to my family or to the world. And I think instead of helping me move forward, it kind of put me back a few steps made me hesitant and shy. And I think I've instead just had a lot of internalized homophobia for a long time. I think I just didn't want to talk about it. I'm still a private person, but I definitely felt more shame than I needed to, I think, because of that. And I think that it's unfortunate that a cool piece in Spin Magazine, you know, at age 21, sort of the emotional memory, I imagine, is kind of now hinged with that other feeling probably with your dad, like how defining, because people like me ask you things like that too. No, no, it's totally fine. It was so long ago. I think it's just trickier to like, because it has to be so contextual. I think the idea of outing someone is such a rare concept now. It's a little bit more of a foreign concept. There's obviously still plenty of like stigma and discrimination, especially more like transphobia, but At the time, there was still a lot more stigma about like just being gay, you know, which has dissipated a lot. So it was very fraught. Yeah. What is your greatest extravagance? Probably just convenience. Like I'm just addicted to convenience the way most of us are. That feels extravagant to me. Just hitting buttons to get food or hitting buttons to get clothes. I mean, it is extravagant. Just anything's extravagant because people live such disparate lives, but I'm not buying like cars or yachts, expensive shoes, but just, it does feel extravagant. Just the level of like convenience that I've become accustomed to is very strange. And it's kind of worse with the pandemic because obviously those are the people that have actually done really well, like Amazon and all those places. Like they're just like, ah, convenience. Welcome to our world. But it feels extravagant and indulgent to me in a way that I hope to come back from a little bit. One reason I liked living in Portland pre-pandemic and one reason I moved back here is because it is easier, I think, to avoid some of that easy kind of convenience extravagance of just like one button and then everything shows up. I'm like, oh, it's fine to walk somewhere and buy groceries or it's fine to do this or that. Like, I like the experiential. Do you consider yourself a solitary person, like on a scale of one to 10? Yeah, I'm definitely an introvert. And I have learned that compared to other people, I can be pretty solitary without suffering too much. I'd put me at an eight or nine. (laughs) Wait, did you watch the show Alone by chance? Yes. 
Because that's what I realized, no, I wouldn't survive a night out there. But that's more than alone. That's like alone and also like you're hunting your own food. Yeah, that would be a mental challenge I don't think I would succeed at. Yeah. But you put on a sweatshirt or sweater. I did. Is it cold? Yeah. But in general, I like feeling cozy even if it's hot. Yeah, me too. My least favorite sensation is being cold. That's your least favorite sensation? Physical sensation. I hate being cold. What about pain? Cold is pain to me. What's the coldest you've ever been? I don't know. It's, I blocked it out. I just hate it so much. But pain is terrible too. So death by fire is preferable than death by freezing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Carrie, do you have a greatest or great regret? I don't think I have a biggest regret. I think I try not to live like that. I think it's easy to get stuck or into kind of like circular thinking. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I feel like there's things I could have done better. There's ways I could have moved through the world that were kinder, more generous. But I feel like there's not one thing that I think I wish I could undo that. I think things happen for a reason. And I think apologies are important. I think you can move through the world and make mistakes and own up to them. And you don't have to necessarily regret them. But I think you can take accountability for them and move forward. I consider myself pretty good at apologizing. I don't have an issue with it. Even if it feels slightly unjust, I think getting older helps yes. as well. I have some regrets with some of my performances. Oh, right. Yeah, I haven't thought like that. You know what I mean? Like there are definitely some things that I think I could have finessed better. I shudder when I think about hosting SNL. I feel like that's the kind of show that everyone, maybe not everyone, but I feel like 95% of people who hosted probably are just like, ah, oh, I should have done this or I wish it had gone that way. But the rest of us just were like, no, oh, that was great. I feel like it shaved a decade off of my life. Oh, God. I can't imagine. I mean, that's like walking a high wire. What was your living arrangement like when you first lived on your own? Um, I moved in in between Western Washington and Evergreen. So my dad was very disappointed. He was like, great, you're called dropout. And I was like, no, I'm transferring schools. But yes, technically, I have left one college and I'll be going to another so he was like, you're not moving back home. You get a job. And it was like kind of the harshest because he's kind of a softy. He was mad. I moved back home to Redmond for like a second. And then my dad was like, please get a job. You're not just sticking around here until you go to Evergreen. So I got a crappy job as a telemarketer in Seattle in the U District. I moved in with a friend of mine who I met, like a woman I met at a rock show, like at a breeder show. And we lived in a duplex on Capitol Hill. We had no furniture. I took the twin mattress from my house. And there's nothing that just infantilizes and just makes you feel less like an adult than a fucking twin bed mattress on a floor. On the floor. <laughs> With like sheets from Goodwill. Remember that era of things where you think that like emulating kid stuff is like sort of cool and ironic. So I had like Sesame Street <laughs> sheets. It's like, I'm an adult. I'm a human adult with fucking Big Bird on my <gasps> sheets, sleeping on a floor. And I remember we were so clueless that we decided to make blueberry muffins. Like we never cooked. I mean, we obviously did because we didn't eat it out, but I don't remember what we cooked. But I thought like, oh, we're going to bake. That's very adult. And we didn't bother to check the expiration date on the milk. So, <laughs> oh God. And then I probably ate like five or six blueberry muffins and was sick for days. So that's really what I associate, just a carpeted house or duplex with a twin bed on the floor and bad muffins. And at that time, Capitol Hill, I haven't been there in years, but in the 90s, Capitol Hill was 
Gritty seems like the obvious word. Yeah, we lived in a really like shit duplex. And I also remember a stray cat. Like we found a stray cat and I did that thing where I just was like, hey, dad, (laughs) can you take this cat? Now I would, of course, like try to figure out where the owner was or put ads up or take it to a shelter, Humane Society. And I was just like, hi, dad, here's your new cat, which had worms. (laughs) You know, it's like I just should not have been living on my own. It seems I should have been in college. I had the mental and emotional maturity of a freshman in college, but was living on my own in an apartment. I usually ask, in one word, how would you like to be remembered? But I'm thinking about revising it to just how would you like to be remembered? Oh, but one word. I like the parameters of one word. Okay, good. Decent. Just decent is fine. Decent. Yeah, she was decent. I always carry like decent. You know what? Decent is like, that is just you're hitting the middle real hard. Wow. She was decent. And depending how you say it, it's like decent can be like not good enough. Or it could be like, she was a decent human being. So it really gives people such a range. They can be trashing me or exalting me. Either way, that's the only word they get. That answer kind of became amazing. Carrie, do your friends compliment you on your impressive vocabulary? It's pre-internet. My vocabulary, I think, has decreased since the internet, but I was such a voracious reader in my 20s. And before you could just look up words on the internet, I would just underline words and novels I was reading. And I was reading all these early like 20th century novels or mid 20th century novels. So some of the vocabulary gets a little arcane or other times it's just flowery for the sake of being flowery. But I do like words and I studied sociolinguistics in schools. I was always interested in the ways people communicated and wrote and spoke. Anyway, so I would underline things and look them up. And I think my brain just was elastic and nimble enough at the time. And it was a formative time that those things got stuck in my head. Now, I think I forget things quicker. Like if I stumble upon a word and I don't know it because I don't have to go through the process of like underlying and then writing down the definition in a little notebook. It's just like I look it up and then a day later, I'm like, what was that word? Anyway. My dad will often use words that are archaic or outdated, but it kind of comforts me. Were there any authors or musicians who influenced you in high school? I think at the time I was only reading what I was required to read in school. Oh, this is like too cliche and on the nose, but we did read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. And I do remember thinking, well, this woman can write. And I loved her story. And I will say it's influential. I didn't necessarily love or appreciate it at the time, but it opened up my world to Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury Group. And later when I actually enjoyed reading, you know, I went back and read The Waves and Remove One's Own and just felt like, oh, okay, this is somebody from that time who I can appreciate on a different level at my own pace and a new lens through which to see it. Yeah. And then musically, I will say, because it just changed everything for me, and it's not even one of my favorite records, but when I was 15 or 16, I had a student teacher in chemistry class, and I was just kind of transitioning away from like trying to fit into just like doing my own thing, but didn't really have friends on either side. So it was like, sort of trying to like dress a little differently. Like I had my cutoff jeans, very like Washington state grunge. Like I had my cutoff jean shorts with like long johns underneath or like some black and white striped tights and combat boots and stuff. And uh, this student teacher came up to me and was like, you know what? I brought you a record today that I think you might like. And it was The Jam and their album, All Mod Cons. And I just remember looking at these guys on the front, like Paul Weller with his little like mod shirt on and his cool haircut. 
And I was like, who are these guys? These guys are so cool. And I just put on the record. And I think the first song is All Mod Cons. It's really fast, just a couple chords. And I was like, holy shit, this is exciting music. And it just opened up everything for me. Also, it gave me sort of like a past key or something. Like I felt like I had this like secret key to like other people who were listening to that kind of music because, you know, I suddenly possessed knowledge and you kind of needed that knowledge at the time. Again, sort of pre-internet, like you couldn't just go home and cheat. You know, you really needed to like glean the knowledge from like books or record stores or other people. So I felt like I had just been given like this, you know, secret code. I was like, aha, the jam. Now I can learn about The Clash and the Ramones and Patti Smith and television. And, you know, it just sort of spirals out from there. So that is a very specific record. I still have that exact record he gave me. That's amazing. Can I be selfish now and ask you like three favorite albums? Well, oh gosh, it's too hard of a question for me. I can't, I could name three records I listened to this year. Yeah, right. Yeah. I loved the Fleet Foxes record that came out this year. I loved Fiona Apple's record that came out this year. I'm writing these. And I loved the Waxahachie record that came out this year. Three great records. All right. Those are all good records. I will check those out. Okay. Carrie, I can't thank you enough, truly. This is amazing. I've loved talking with you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope I wasn't boring or repetitive. No, no, you're fascinating. And I love you. Well, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Truly, thank you. And I really hope our paths cross in person. Me too. I would love that. Take care. Hopefully I'll see you on the other side. Thanks, Carrie. Have a wonderful night. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Emily Morse as Unqualified's newest guest expert. Dr. Emily is a doctor of human sexuality, author, and host of the extremely popular Sex with Emily podcast. She also has a brand new masterclass on sex and communication, which, as you'll find out, she knows a lot about. You can learn more about Dr. Emily Morse and our other experts by visiting our website, unqualified.com. Hi, Dr. Emily. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. Should we call Sarah? Let's do it. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you? Well, you know, pretty good. Um, Sarah, I wanted to introduce you to Dr. Emily Morse, who's here with us today. Dr. Emily is a doctor of human sexuality and the host of the Sex with Emily podcast. Hi, Sarah. 
Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to speak with you and just get any tips I can from you both. <laughs> um, Sarah, will you tell us what's going on? So my dilemma is that for my husband and I, our sexual experiences, they tend to stop when he has an orgasm and that just ends the whole experience. And he's always disappointed and really apologetic when it's over, quote unquote, over. So I told him that our sex doesn't have to revolve around him having an orgasm and that it doesn't need to end there. Um, and so he asked me what he could do for me after he's finished. Um, and I told him an example is to go down on me. But now I feel like it's too forced and not as sexy um, and that he just feels obligated to get me off after he's done. So I just really want to improve this for both of us. I want him to enjoy his orgasms and not feel so bad about it. And I want to have orgasms in a sexy environment and not in like a obligated transactional manner. Sarah, can I ask you a quick question? How long have you been married? About a year and a half. So it's still a relatively new marriage. How old are you, Sarah? I am 28. And your husband, he's the same age? Yes. Okay. So just so you know, this is a very common scenario. You know, you're young, you've been together a year and a half. I'm going to guess that maybe you haven't had a ton of conversations about sex, maybe even outside the bedroom, about what you're into and what turned you on. I'm very open about sex and I initiate conversations like that, but I think he just feels too shy about like talking about what turns him on and all that. So he's just kind of yeah. um, dismissive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, here's the good news is that there's a lot of room for you guys to explore right now and to learn about each other because... You know, what I see so much with couples is that it's just a lack of sex education. This isn't even your problem or your husband's fault. It's comprehensive sex ed is not really available anywhere, definitely not in the States. So what he's got to, you know, understand is about this thing that we like to call the orgasm gap. You know, women, we just require foreplay to be turned on get our brains on board for sex, and then we'll be ready. So I totally understand. You're like, well, if it's obligatory oral, then why would I even, you know, it seems like it's already past the fact. So it sounds to me like there has to be a little bit of communication. Do you know maybe what it's about, like his upbringing? Was it culturally not safe to talk about sex? We've had a lot of conversations about this in particular, and I think I just got frustrated because I told him a few nights ago, like, oh, I said this to you many times so I don't know why nothing is changing so I just think that he needs some more help like specific well you know what's interesting here too Sarah I feel like your conversations about sex are really stressful probably to both of you guys Mm -hmm. I mean this is the thing it's that it's having these conversations and also being patient with him and saying you know and I always recommend that we have these conversations outside the bedroom When you guys are just hanging out, maybe you're relaxing, maybe you're going on a walk, you're doing something where you're feeling connected, making dinner together. And then you just say like this, I always say it's the things to remember are timing, tone and turf. So the turf is outside the bedroom. Okay. Like we often think, oh, I should have this conversation in the bedroom because sex just happened. If we were cooking, we'd have it in the kitchen. You know, we wouldn't talk a recipe. It's very different. And then your tone is light and curious. And then, you know, the timing is just when you're relaxed. So you're hanging out. You just say, you know what? 
I would love to kind of start a conversation about our sex life and what we're both into. And I know that we've talked about it and, and this is really uncomfortable for me too. I've never had these conversations, but we've agreed to be life partners. And I think we can both agree we want to be great lovers to each other. Would you be willing to go on a journey with me where we can both explore and learn and educate ourselves? Because what I'm hearing is that he doesn't know. And the reason why I said this is common is because most of us don't come from environments where we talked about sex, where it was okay, where our parents were talking about it, our friends were. So I just want to give you permission to understand that like, this is a starting point. And could, would you feel comfortable kind of opening up that with him, Sarah, saying like, let's just kind of talk about it? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, I never heard that before, like talking outside the bedroom. That yeah. makes more sense because I always start these conversations, you know, when I'm like very frustrated. So I bet that my tone isn't great. Yeah, well, exactly. So you know how it is when we when we we say to our partner, you never do, you know, you never take the trash out. It's so hard because automatically when you say you never to someone, they're on the defensive. But if you're like, you know what? I know that I've talked to you in the past about my desires in the bedroom, and I feel that maybe I haven't done it in a way that's really kind and that maybe it made you feel bad. Let's start over. Let's just say, like, we're going to explore each other together. And this is when it's like he's not expecting it because it's not after he already feels like he maybe let you down, you know, in the bedroom again. And so that's really what it is. And then it's an ongoing conversation. Sarah, it sounds like you guys are doing foreplay after he's orgasmed. Is it difficult for him to not come quickly? Oh, no. We do foreplay in the beginning, too. Is it difficult for him to not come quickly? Well, I just wonder if he can get hard again or if it takes him a long time to get hard again after he's come. Oh, yeah. He's like one and done. Um, he can't get hard again afterwards. Okay. After he's come. And sometimes he will get hard and then during foreplay he gets soft and then he can't get hard again hmm. so yeah I think he's in his head a lot maybe yeah or I am too <laughs> yeah we all are see this is why it's like if we talk about it then we're in our heads less listen we are all humans we're going to be in our heads so the other thing that might be interesting to, to explore with him is this whole notion of she comes first it's a great book written by Dr. Ian Kerner and I would I recommend it to a lot of men who are just getting to understand the female body and pleasure and you guys could even read it together and so the whole concept is yeah he pleases you first he gets you going and I understand that maybe he won't have his erection, but I, you guys are 28 years old. Maybe you go down on him again, grab some lube, grab a toy, tease him. It's like, it's not so finite. Maybe it went down, but I have a feeling that your sexy self and your connection with him, it would come back. And then you would feel good knowing that you already got there. Maybe you have an orgasm or you're really turned on. It's just kind of reframing the, the paradigm. I think, Dr. Emily, you've really like touched on something that it seems to me, Sarah, that your your conversations and your relationship with sex is kind of stressful right now and is framed in like this negative, like highly pressurized situation. We would love for it to be fun and relaxing and intimate. And so I think it should start with these conversations. And I want to plug Dr. Emily's book, Hot Sex, Over 200 Things You Can Try Tonight, reframing this whole discussion in a more playful, less stressful way. 
where you both aren't anticipating having an orgasm too early or something that can draw you closer around it. Right now, it feels like it's kind of a just a tough topic for you both, which it shouldn't be. Yeah, we were talking about that a couple of nights ago. It's been a lot less exploring each other and more like about, okay, who got to come this time, you know? Mm. So okay. um, definitely work on conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great that you're even having those conversations. Like, you guys understand. Now you've identified. Like, we haven't quite got our, you know, our orgasms matched up. And then something that I'm hearing in talking to you, Sarah, it might be fun to say you use the word explore. And since you're just, you're new, new really, you know, been together a year and a half, what if we, like, just started from scratch again? Because I'm sure at the beginning, right, Sarah, there was a lot of making out and anticipation and excitement. And I like to think about maybe even take penetration off the table. Mm. And then you're like, I'm just going to give to you. Now I'm going to give you a massage. And we're going to make out. We're going to play some games together. And we can have penetration. And then you'll get to learn, like, what is his arousal like? What turns you on? And it's playful and it's fun and it's novel. Something new you can explore together. It's like you're relearning together. Yeah, I love that idea. This is what I want for so many couples, and especially, you know, for you, you both is that, like Anna's saying, it does, it's gotten this kind of complicated and now it's become stressful, but that doesn't have to be your state. Like you don't have to stay in this place and you can just say, let's both work on it together. You know, let's figure it out. And then this week it could be, we're going to just, you know, focus on foreplay and then see where that gets you. And then you guys could talk about it. What did we learn? And, you know, where could we go from here? And I've got tons of, you know, ideas for that. But how does that sound to you starting? Oh, I love that idea. I think you would too. Yay. Great, a willing partner. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Hey, Sarah, would you be open to us sending you Dr. Emily's book, Hot Sex, Over 200 Things You Can Try Tonight? Oh, my gosh. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, we could totally send that to you. And the other thing I was thinking that might be fun, and this is going to, this just launched on, on my website. It's it's free. It's a free downloadable, and it's called a pleasure planner. You know, pleasure is sometimes the first thing that goes, right? We think about work and the kids and all the things. So it kind of asks you these prompts. When was the most memorable time we've had sex? Or when did we have the most pleasure last year? What gives me pleasure? And then you get to kind of look at the next year and it gives you months and gives you prompts to really get into it. But it's a fun, you could say once a week, we're going to fill out the planner or you can binge and do it in a night. And then you have it set up and you're having these conversations and then you have it like kind of laid out and there's prompts and suggestions. So that's another thing. I think that it's, we put so much pressure on ourselves to sort of solve the sex problem. And what I've known in all these years is that it's really hard, Sarah, to have these conversations. It's not easy to understand this stuff. And you can't just go watch a YouTube video on it, unfortunately. Everything else you can, because it's also individual. So the both of you could kind of explore. You probably haven't thought about, well, what does feel good? And what do I want more of? What's my, what's my fantasy that I've never told anybody? Or can we create new ones together? That might be another thing. I like to pretend I'm a lady of the night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Costumes. <gasps> do, you just, do you dress up? I've got some wigs. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wigs. I'm telling you, I met a woman once at a store and I told her what I did. She was probably like 65 years old. She said, honey, I got the best advice for you. And I said, what? She said, wigs. Get a whole closet of wigs because, <gasps> yeah. because then you show up and you're, I mean, it sounds silly, but you're a different, you can show up as an alter ego if you have some insecurities, like not this woman in the blue wig. She doesn't have, it's just, it's playful. 
That's why we want to make it fun for you guys. Not this like we got to sit down and plan our pleasure. But, you know, Dr. Emily, I'm really close to my parents. We never talked about sex. So I had a very like slow and jarring. Well, no, it wasn't slow. <laughs> I had a jarring like introduction, I think, to sex, which is probably pretty typical, though. And like that has been one of the great things about getting older. I'm 44 now. I, I feel so much more comfortable, of course, talking about sex and, and being sexual than I did in my 20s. I wish that I had felt more comfortable then. I didn't either. I mean, I I didn't tell my 30s. I started doing my podcast in my 30s because I was like, I've never talked about sex. And, and so that's why I want to give you permission because it sounds like you've chosen each other, you know, to be, to, to be each other's partner, Sarah. And the cool thing is that you can recognize that maybe culturally where we grew up, it wasn't accepted. Maybe there were some messages in the home that were more shame-based or fear-based. And then the two of you, Sarah, get to decide, these were our messages around sex. You know, how about this? I grew up thinking, oh, men should just know how to please me. They just went off to a secret school and they learned everything. And so it's sort of a little bit of unlearning, recognizing that maybe the messages about sex aren't true anymore. Let's make our own decisions about what sex means to us. And then this is a journey you get to go on in your relationship. You know, because most of us, I'm telling you, like not just Anna, not just myself, I would say, yeah, Sarah, it sounds like you and your partner, even if our parents were cool with it, they still weren't talking like what I'm talking about. And that's my mission is to get everyone to talk about it. Sex, like they're talking about the weather because there's so much suffering around it. And it's okay to talk about it. It actually improves your life, your health. Sarah, in your letter, you say that your husband does feel a lot of pressure and guilt, which probably doesn't help. Yeah, I think that a part of that comes from our conversations about the differences in our sex drives. So I have a much higher sex drive than he does, and he knows that. So I think that pressure lowered his sex drive even more, you know? I think there's a lot of pressure on men. Yeah, it's really common. And just so you know, in every relationship, Sarah, just to, to understand that there is a high desire partner and a lower desire partner. Unfortunately, they don't typically match up two high desires and two low desires. So just know that you're, it's very common. It's not addressed in our society very much. No. Because I feel like I've been the high desire partner in most of my past relationships, and I kind of associated it with rejection. Yeah, we think, oh, what did I do? Or am I not sexy enough every time they don't want to have sex? And so it's a mind trick. This is also, I mean, this is what's going to be fun for you, Sarah. See, this makes me excited that, that you're even calling. Like, it's so brave for you to call into the show right now because, well, not only is it helping everyone else, but most importantly, you to realize that, like, it's okay that you're a higher desire and he's a lower desire. And that's something to, to think about. When are we most in the mood? When you're having these conversations that I encourage you to have often with him? Kevin, think about it because he's probably never thought about it. He's like, well, it's typically after a workout, right? Or maybe it's when I have less stress with work or it's the weekends. And well, this might not sound sexy to many people is that scheduling it, sort of having an idea. And I used to say, oh God, that sounds so boring. I got to look at my calendar and be like, dry cleaning, sex. <laughs> you can also pivot and say, okay, Saturday night, it's going to happen. And then you get to get in your body and what makes me feel sexy and maybe you masturbate, please yourself. And then he knows it's happening and maybe there's a little bit of playing and foreplay and you just start to understand who you are together. Like what works for both of you? What does get him going? What gets you in the most mood? And then how do we match that up? Sarah, does your husband, is he good at bringing you to orgasm? 
He is. Um, it's just been a little off. And I think because of the conversations we've been having together, and maybe I just didn't have the right tone. I know his love language is words of affirmation, mm. and he likes to be praised and all that. So maybe I, I think I just didn't come off the right way in those right. conversations, maybe. I love, Sarah, that you know his love language. Because now when you have that conversation, when you're in the kitchen or having dinner, you want to do the compliment sandwich, right? Do you know about that, Sarah, where you lead with like something, some really hot moment or what you find really sexy about him, some stuff he's done in the bedroom that are fabulous. You could say, God, last time we had sex when you were kissing my neck, that felt so good. Or I love when you went down on me. I've been thinking about that all week. The middle part of the sandwich is when you say, and I thought it would be really cool if we could start sort of talking about what you're into as well. And when you want to have sex, so we can make this, you know, and then the last part is like, so because I know we want to be great lovers to each other, right? So it's that positive because people who have words as affirmation as their their love language, our egos get involved with sex and it's a problem. But to know that he disappointed you, he believes, or he's not adding up or he's not measuring up to what you want, just to kind of keep reinforcing it. We're in it together. And it is tone. And you and you didn't do anything wrong, but now we're learning. I think we can turn this around. You know, like, baby, I love your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could be whatever you love about him. Make a list. You could write him a note. These are all the things I love about you. Sarah, remember how I was saying that um, I grew up in a like a household that didn't talk about sex, and now my parents are listening to my <laughs> podcast more frequently? <laughs> yeah. I am interested in the pressure that men put on themselves in this particular arena. They really do. I mean, it's like they grow up thinking, I have to lead with sex. I have to know what to do. And there's a lot of pressure. And then there's also the notion that men want it all the time. So when they don't, they just feel less than. So yeah, there's just a lot of pressure. There's so much pressure for men. You're right. And like telling them you understand that. He wants to be a wonderful husband and he wants to understand your body and you know, you'd be like, babe, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. We can have so much fun, you know? Yeah. You get my book. You'll flip it around. You'll be like, look at this position. Or we could try this. And then I just think often with sex, we don't know what's on the menu. We don't even know where to go. Like, what is even possible? We know penetrative sex, which is focused on the male orgasm, which is also in your email, Sarah. You know, that's what you, you talk about. And that, that's really all we mostly see. It's a part of thinking, okay, well, what else? We could just give each other massages or make out and that could be arousing. You know what I mean? It's like anything's possible. This is slightly off topic, but I have a friend who doesn't like doggy style because uh, she thinks it's disrespectful and she wants her husband to look at her face. And it just makes me think that there is societal pressure there, too. I've heard that as well because it feels less intimate. So I understand your friend. And then I also understand it feels it can feel great. Yeah, it feels pretty good. Right, exactly. And so what I'm thinking is like for your friend, it's like there's a ways to work around it too, but we're not, we don't have to solve doggy style, but it's just that. It's that we all get to taste what's on the menu and think, do I like this position? Do I not? And I would say, Sarah, you probably don't even know yet because you haven't explored it all together. So now you get to figure it out, but we are also different. And that's also the challenge is that, you know, Anna, if you didn't know more about sex and have this show and all the things, all the life you've lived, you might think, oh, shit, yeah, I better not do the doggy style anymore. But, you know, like we're all different. You put 100 women in a room and you ask them all what they liked, like maybe half would like doggy, half wouldn't, half wouldn't, you know, it's just this is it. So that's why it's an invitation to say what is possible? What positions do I like? What don't I mean? Do you know, Sarah? So I want to know. 
if you had to tell us right now, what is like a position or something that's really turned you on the most with your husband? Could you name like your hottest sexual movie as we call it? Was there a moment that you just like, oh yeah, that was amazing? I don't know what name of the position is, oh, it could just be anything. Like, yeah. <laughs> like when he's sitting down and I'm on top facing away from him. Oh, oh. nice. That's hot. Yeah, mm-hmm. reverse cowgirl. Oh, okay. But when he's sitting up is a twist to it. Like if that's a he's so he's sitting on the bed or on a chair. So you probably like that because tell me what it is about that position. I think because we get to that position maybe three moves in and I don't know. I think because he can like he has full access to my upper body. Yes. In that position. Um, okay. Yeah. This is and see, he can oh, like kiss me. Yeah, he back. can kiss you. <laughs> so this is the thing about these positions and even doggy style or reverse cowgirl. We think it's not intimate, but yeah, you can turn your head. He can kiss your cheek. He can play with your breasts. He can still stimulate your clitoris that way, which is key to orgasm. That's why penetrative sex doesn't work a lot. So, oh, I love that you know this. So what would be fun is you could even lead and say, I keep thinking about that time I was on your lap and you feel so great that you're behind me and you have access and I can feel your arms and you put your, you know what I mean? Just play. And then, it, then that becomes a visual of what you're into. So now it's like he can be thinking, oh, well, Sarah likes this. Let's try to move into that position again. And then you could ask him, you know, this is why it's like a fact-finding mission. Like it's saying, well, what, what was your most memorable time? You know, wow, we both like that. I had no idea you liked the time when I, you know, when you spanked me. That felt so great. Or when I dressed up. And so this is just why you, you guys have the information. It's just a matter of giving each other permission to explore it together without shaming and without blaming and letting him know how much you love him and you care about your sex life and that if you've ever offended him in that way, you don't mean to. And that's why it's like a, a clean slate of a judgment-free, shame-free zone. Right. Sarah, I'm weirdly excited for you. <laughs> I am too. Like restructuring their sex life into this exciting adventure. An adventure. It should be an adventure. I want that for everybody. You know, pleasure is our birthright. We all deserve it. And right now, especially, we deserve to understand this. It, it's like we all could have incredible intimacy and, and sex and not have it so centered on the male orgasm. And it's just, it's a process of learning and unlearning. But I, I think mostly if you think, well, what does feel the most good to me and what feels good to you, babe? And it's just that tone. You know, Sarah, it's kind of like we're in this. Sarah, I love what Dr. Emily said about like the compliment sandwich and the continual reinforcement because the idea that he feels guilt and frustration and with enough reassurance and positivity and like compliments and you can shift that framework in his head so it won't be stressful for him. Yeah, I'm so excited to share all this with him. He's actually in the other room and he's like, this is good that you're talking to them because we need advice. Mm. This is so good. I love it that you told him too, that you wrote in and that you're having this conversation. And my podcast, a lot of couples listen to it together and whether it's my podcast or something else, but it's, it's about educating yourself, taking it outside of you guys, just the two of you, finding more stimuli, more things to educate, to understand and, and unlearn and relearn. And get some wigs, Sarah. Get some wigs. (laughs) They're really fun. (laughs) I love that he's outside there and he's ready for it. You know, he's ready to hear. Oh, yeah. You're going to have a good day. (laughs) It's going to be a good afternoon. 
Thank you both so much. This was really good to hear, especially about the tone part and the compliment sandwich. I, I think that's what you called it, and the no penetration experiment. So yes. we'll try all of that. Timing, tone, and turf. <laughs> Just remember, what's my tone? Yeah, I love yes. that. Timing, tone, and turf. Sarah, I want to thank you for sharing with us because I know that we'll get a lot of feedback from our listeners. A lot of people, of course, experience all of these sexual issues, and you were kind enough to share yours. And I just know people will find it really helpful. So thank you very much. Oh, thank, thank you, you, Sarah. <laughs> all right, Sarah, go hop on him. Right. <laughs> oh, wait, no, wait a week. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, hey, Sarah, have a wonderful rest of your day. Oh, thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye, Sarah. Bye. Bye. Dr. Emily, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Goodbye, Dr. Emily. Bye. 